Yeah, there. That'd be easier. Maybe. So hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is round two with the noted composer, musicologist and all-round good guy, Miguel Mera. And I'm actually here with my friend Sara, who has been on the podcast before, but she's about to shoot through uh, to go and uh, work. But who knows whether she will say one or two things while we're here. One can't know. But Miguel, let's kick off. And I think what we said we'd do this time about your academic work yeah. uh, rather than so much your musical work but maybe the first thing we should do is actually question that distinction because yeah. that may not be a real distinction in your I don't think it is really yeah. kind of, you know, I'm a composer and I, and I write about stuff um, <laughs> professor of stuff professor of stuff and, and, and they, feed, you know, they feed each other so, and, and I have also written about some of my own compositional practice and other people's sort of process so it's, they're pretty closely related it doesn't quite work in most academic institutions that um, it's a sort of a nice idea to be a, to be a, both a, pra- a practitioner I'm doing scare quotes at the moment yeah and um, Scare quotes are the things where the podcast always falls down because <laughs> people do them and then they feel the need to say, I'm doing scare quotes now. But they never feel the need to say, I'm pulling a face. <laughs> I, can, I can do that. I can have a, you know, there'll be audio description of uh, all my facial gestures as we go. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I don't see um, really a distinction. It's all part of, the, of, of what I do and, it's, yeah. and it all feeds, feeds into to it, you know, and, and the way I write is absolutely influenced by my practical experience and maybe that gives me some insights as well that other academic writers on film music don't don't have because because of that that uh, industry experience practitioners yeah. world that's interesting so is it common I mean I know you're common as much but is yeah, yeah it, sure but is it common for people to do musicology or do political economy of music or do aesthetics of music or reception studies of music whatever we call the writing and also be a composer or a trombonist or I think it's I think it's increasingly common um, I can't think of many people in in my area of film music doing this. Um, but I think there are certainly performers. There are certainly composers who do. Who, you know, their, their research is very um, clearly tied to their, their, their practice and um, the and the things they want to write about in, say, in terms of other composers is also clearly related to their own practice. So. Certainly in terms of the composers, I think there are more. Maybe not so many in the film music. I've got limited experience of this in the US because although I was in an art school for most of my time there, the only music we had in the school was essentially preparing people to work on Broadway as show musicians. But really, musical theatre, I think it was called. And that was really about singing and acting. It wasn't composing or playing Uh, and the place I worked at in California had a music department and there you got tenure if your composition was published published meant a publisher producing a score a score right and if you didn't I, I think that was really what they did they didn't have this blend yeah, yeah. of things that you seem to have. That, um, that's a very um, odd concept that uh, a score, the bit of paper is the publication of a, of a composition. Um, what about, I don't know, a YouTube output? That's an output, right? Or um, in my case, you know, the film, that's, that's a publication, right? A one-off performance by 400 Canadian choristers exactly, yeah. in, in, in the cold, which yeah. is what one of my colleagues right. had. But that wouldn't have counted, presumably, because Very it wasn't... Yeah. Well, 
he was lucky he had the other stuff too which enabled him then right. to do this work but the same you know he wrote music for electronic games for Fox right they don't that's not kosher he's got all the kosher books in place so yeah. that's alright yeah. then the question is how flexible you can be with acknowledging bureaucratically academically these things that in the UK is it a little easier would you say I think it depends on the attitude of the institution and, I, and an awful lot is driven by REF which is the, the research excellence framework so um, and this is coming up and um, in 2014 all of the academics across the UK are going to be assessed on the supposed quality of their, their research output. Hey, thanks. And are you ready to order some food to order? Can I get um, the post eggs, please? On brain or sourdough? On brain, please. Um, yeah, so... And I, you know, I have to think about what I'm submitting, as does every academic, and wondering how well some of, let's say, my more commercial work would play out in that kind of assessment environment. And um, I guess I'm leaning, as most people, to the more conservative, this is more easy to define as research kind of research. So, so words on a page that yeah. have been published in a yeah. journal, rather than, here's a commercial I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's sad, isn't it? Really, and so I think in certain ways. Well, I think one needs a different arm of the research excellence framework, like a cultural production one. I think it's just hard to define in most creative outputs. At least in music, we're very bad at this in music. Actually, where, where the research is, what the research questions are. So you get to write a little bit to explain that, which at least sort of helps contextualise it. But if we look at sort of colleagues in, um, I don't know, fine art or design or some, some of the more visual or plastic arts, they don't have a problem with, with this. They're, they're really comfortable with, okay, yeah, that's, a, that's research in your sculpture or your painting or whatever. And you've, I don't know, you've kept a diary and that's sort of part of the evidence of it, base of it or whatever. And we're, we're I think, a bit more stuffy about this in music than a number of other sort of art subjects. So. Is that because music's always had a very scholarly component? I think so. I don't know why really. Conventionally scholarly, yeah. I think so. But at the same token, by the same token, in the UK, um, every music degree has a practical performance element or some kind of composition element, which isn't the case if you go to, let's say, mainland Europe, where you would do a musicology degree and you are not expected to play, play an instrument. But it's kind of a requirement and an expectation of pretty much Is every it? music, UK music degree, or that you do some kind of creative work, you, um, you know. Would that involve also reading music? I mean, reading... Depends on the course. I mean, notes. Notes, yeah. Depends on the course. Um, uh, I mean, we, that's what we ask for on our, on our course, but a fair, fair amount of the work that people do, let's say you're working in the studio as a composer, you, you, don't, need, you don't need that stuff. You only really need the notation in that situation if you're going to put something in front of someone and you want them to, to play it. If you're not working in that medium, then it's not really sort of useful to you. So, and there are courses that don't that don't expect that. So Paul McCartney need not apply. I mean, <laughs> no. with good reasons for can't write music <laughs> at all. But um, let's say in the days when he could, when he wrote Hey Jude, he'd have said, "Shows promise, but must learn to That's read right. music." That's right. He wouldn't have got in. Yeah, exactly. Bloody good thing. But, um, but there are courses that he uh, he would have got in, and you know, and lesser institutions. <laughs> no, not that. I mean, you know, and Lipper, Lipper is of course on that same kind of principle. They've got songwriting and you know, and all sorts of other things going on there, which is you know, he's he's, uh, he's a patron of this. So. Um, what is Lipper? Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, which is the thing he he founded. Did he? Yeah. Well, he wrote an oratorio, didn't he? Even though he right, yeah. can't read music. I mean, he. Yeah. I guess he played yeah. it, and then somebody else. He had a bit of help. Yeah. 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 It's interesting, isn't it? Is that? Oh, it's going off topic a little bit, but is that a big division or barrier within music? sort of notation? Yeah. Or is it something that's actually not that relevant? I think um, I, I, it's not been a big debate. I don't think because I think the courses that are clear about it are sort of they're fine. They're fine with it. 
in, in most cases, if you've got instrumental players coming on your courses, which is you know a requirement of our of entry into our program that you've you've done your grades and that you've got grade eight cello or whatever, then by default you kind of have to be able to read music to to play that instrument. You have to have gone through that kind of process. So it's not so much of a of an issue. For, for us. Thank you. I mean, I, I can sort of talk really only about my experience because I, you know, I, in a former life, played um, guitar fairly seriously, and um, and it certainly helped in all sorts of things. And it's it's Miguel Mera is Spanish for Johnny Marr. Very few people know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that. I'll, I'll use that. Um, <laughs> Miguel Johnny Mera. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now we're talking. Hey, it's the Irish Spanish thing yeah. <laughs> happening across Manchester. For, for me, it was useful in all sorts of ways, and, um, and I think it's I think it's useful for people to have some kind of tactile, physical engagement with an instrument. But what about I don't know a laptop performer? I would say that that's that's an instrument that someone could practice and learn to play and you know and engage with. The laptop dancing, for example. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> would, be a, would be a necessary right, skill for entry into, say, becoming a trombonist. Ex exactly, and it's it's our it's one of our new MA courses uh, next year because we need to get the numbers up. So. You're starting up the greasy pole. On yeah, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, right. So um, no, but a laptop performer. Yeah. That's not ten, that's not considered an instrument, and you can't do grade eight laptop whizzy stuff. But. Um, but someone might be very, very skilled and sophisticated. That's at that. crazy, isn't it? And that's a, that's a traditional bias. That reflects yeah. a traditional bias. But it's interesting. So what you're saying in response to Sarah's question is that there's a phenomenological aspect here that you do subscribe to. Mm. But presumably, some of that phenomenology could apply to dancing. To the music, a physical relationship to the music can be yeah. that you you go to concerts and you dance. Have you or... seen many musicians dancing? <laughs> <laughs> Ricky Martin. <laughs> Gen <laughs> Generally speaking, George Michael. Quite, well, yeah, no, sure. Um, quite often, I found that um, musicians have got great rhythm, except for when it comes to moving their own bodies in a dance. So. That's interesting. So I don't know any of anywhere. I think that's the case. Bye bye. Well, I can only assume that it's either trained out of people when they're learning an instrument, or that it's different parts of the the brain, perhaps, that are actually engaged. But I'm, I'm, you know, I can I can do rhythm because I compose and I know how sort of music works and I can feel rhythm. But I cannot dance to, you know, save my life. It's, it's really, it's bad. It's dad, it's dad dancing in every every sense of the word. Um, so your children are going to be monumentally embarrassed. Absolutely. About now, years now, now. <laughs> At six months and four years, mm. respectively. Yeah. It's just, Dad, stop it. Yeah. Stop moving. Exactly. In a way that you it, think is responding but it's to not. music. But it's not. Yeah. I did, um, there was a guy in um, University of Texas who, um, we met at a conference and he was about to offer him a, um, a course uh, called Music and Social Dance. And this seemed to be quite radical because he was going to get a you know, study of how various dance forms throughout history work, but he was going to get all of the students to learn the dance as well. So there was going to be a physical engagement and a musicological and an and engagement, analytical engagement with the music, but through you know a physical first, a physical engagement with the dance. And no one, no one signed up basically. So he'd set this whole thing up. Because there were just too many different things that you had to be good at. I don't know if it's just a, a musician's mentality, maybe, that there's, you know, ingrained was the, that sounds nice, but, you know, I'm not going to choose to do that. If you, if, you, if you make me do it, I might see some benefit. Yeah, so they're doing, in a sense, what they're saying is, I'm a performer, you're asking me to be an audience. 
Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it's the context in which, this, in which this music is usually performed does not involve that dance element, and therefore that's what the, the I've tradition got a is. I've feeling that there's some footage of Leonard Bernstein dancing the twist. Really? How Somewhere. Is that? Like, incredibly embarrassing. Right. With Jackie Kennedy or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, like, hugely awful. Yeah. That would be a good one, because he spans trying to be a serious composer, sure. being a popular composer, yeah. being a conductor. I think he was kind of a prodigy pianist or yeah. something. He's really across... And you can't say that he doesn't have rhythm, right? You know, you, some of that music... Da, 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 exactly. But somehow in the body, it kind of... It doesn't translate, so... I don't know, someone needs to do some research on musicians' brains versus, you know, dancers' brains, and they're... Dancers, likewise, that I've worked with, have a completely different understanding of, of musical rhythm to musicians. They count in a completely different way, think in a completely different way. So, there's I something going you on. You and I have to write a kind of popular piece together called Why Can't Musicians Dance? <laughs> yes. Okay. Don't you think? It'd yeah. be really fun. Yeah. And start with Bernstein and go from there. Yeah, yeah. We'll start. We could do it online. We'll look for Lenny <laughs> getting jiggy with it with Chubby Checker. <laughs> Sounds good. Why musicians can't dance? Yeah. It's not white men can't dance. It's music, or white men can't jump. That's white it. men can't jump. Yeah. yeah. Musicians can't dance. I've always loved white men can't jump on the grounds that how many people who are not white are the men's pole vault champion <laughs> or the men's yes, high yeah, yeah. jump champion? I don't see a hell of a lot actually. But, yeah. You know, fine. Go right ahead. Yeah, yeah, I guess. That is really interesting. So there's a, there's a phenomenal relationship to it. You're saying, in a sense, it's about playing, although playing for you could involve the computer. Could you you yeah. don't see the reason. People, I mean, often people ask me, you know, you go to parties or whatever, and you go, oh, I'm a composer, and, and I do film music. So, so everyone they, stands back, waits for you to... They, go, <laughs> they wait for me to dance, yeah. Um, they, um, they then sort of go, oh... Um, anything I've seen and then the question after that is what do you play because there's an assumption that being a composer means that you physically must engage with some kind of instrument and I kind of go well I, you know I used to play this and used to do that but now I play the computer yeah and people go oh that's very funny but they, I don't think they really they don't really understand that. well the vision is I suppose if you're if you're a rock musician it's a guitar and if you're a classical composer, it's the piano, isn't it? That's the kind of rough. You exactly. Think of Beethoven yeah. with a quill pen and a piano before exactly. he goes deaf yeah. or something. Right? Yeah. And then you think of Keith Richard with a pad hanging out of his mouth and a guitar. That's it. And, and that's the perception, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. But very rarely is that the, the reality. The reality, you know. Yeah. Um, People so, are sat at a computer, you know. Time or, has to move on, doesn't it? Mm. Perceptions, though, they, they, they persist in this, this kind of area. So. Yeah. So what about in terms of, I mean, sorry, we, we haven't really gotten into your academic writing yet, but I'd like to just follow this line of inquiry for a minute more, if we could, and then start telling people about your academic yeah, yeah, work sure. and where they can read it. What, when did studying popular music, be it show tunes or rock operas, <laughs> become feasible in, music in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it'd been kicking around for a while, but I think it wasn't really till the 80s and 90s that it began to become. One of the... Um, Philip Tagg is one of the sort of the, the first scholars to really push uh, Simon Frith and more sort of sociological sort of side. So there was stuff happening in sort of Edinburgh, and there was stuff happening in Liverpool, particularly when Phil Tagg went there and he set up the um, Popular Music sort of research sort of institute, and then degrees began to sort of incorporate it um, then. I don't know when the first sort of popular music degree sort of first came about, but it would have been around that time, maybe uh, the early 90s. And was it more culturalist and sociological than aesthetic and production-oriented? Yes, absolutely. Production stuff comes much later. Much later. Um, and the idea that that might be valuable, you know, and, val and valued by the academy. Yeah. Um, you're, you're getting really into the late 90s, early 90s. So are there still 
and I don't mean this critically, actually, necessarily. Are there still people who are old school who think this is the brigands at the gate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, and and that often plays out in in certain departments where there are, let's say, a group of scholars dealing with popular music and a group of scholars dealing with, I don't know, what presumably unpopular music. Um, <laughs> And, and yeah, there's quite often a, um, a, a clash. But I, I think it's moved on a pace from that. You know, a few years ago, you kind of knew where there were fights over this, and everyone's kind of settled down and going, oh, it's it's all okay, really. I think. Um, but you know, there I think there are different kinds of institutions won't have, just won't be doing popular music. You know, that's not it's not what they're they're it's about. They, they're sort of about. Yeah. yeah. I'm just protecting the mic a bit. Yeah, from... sure. A rowdy segment over there in one corner. Uh, okay, so let's get on to your again. Let, let's let's call it written stuff. Yeah. Words, words, words yeah. on music. Yeah. Tell us about the sorts of themes you've explored. So I, I do cover quite a lot of stuff. Um, I've got I've published two books. Um, Nowhere near as many as, as you, Professor Miller, but um, I'm working, working towards it. Um, I've got... So one book was called European Film Music, and this was about um, uh, what, kind of what it says on the tin. But all of the, all of the writing until that point had really been about Hollywood and North American sort of film music. So it, um, it was really just trying to open up the idea that there are other traditions, other um, uh, ways of thinking about stuff to do with film music, and that all of the scholarship, methodologically and aesthetically, if it's based on one tradition, is kind of not accurately re representing the, the field of uh, film music. So that's one thing it did. The other thing is it's, it also kind of went, but there is no such thing as a European kind of film music. You know. um, it, Europe is a series of, of nation states which are very different politically, geographically, economically, aesthetically and so on. So it, it kind of ended up being more, you know, a book with, here's an example of this, um, of a Spanish sort of approach, of, a, of the iconic Italian one, of, you know, an Eastern European sort of approach. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that was that. Um, Is that an edited collection? That's an edited collection. Yeah, and did you write in that one? Yeah, I did. I wrote about a Greek um, filmmaker, Theo Angelopoulos, and... Um, his collaboration with um, a composer called Eleni Karaindru and really about the use of space and silence in, in the score for a film called Eternity in a Day, um, which is a late 90s film. And it, it, yeah, I guess it's really just about a very a, a different kind of approach to the relationship of composer and director and um, not trying to score obvious narrative and sort of finding other ways of, of making the music work with, with the film and sort of how, how it ties to sort of broader concepts behind the film. So um, that was the one I did and then, you know, obviously the introduction about, you know, here's what's in this volume. Yeah. Here's, here's how we tie together all this random stuff. Yeah. Kind of thing. Here's how these things are bound together in a book which makes them connected when in fact they're not, they're not really. Yeah. <laughs> so that we did you, that. You just let out the deep dark secret of editing. <laughs> so there's that. And then I've got a monograph on a film uh, called The Ice Storm, which almost no one has seen, um, but is an Ang Lee film. And the composer's a guy called, you seen it? I really like, obviously I really like the film, I wrote a book about it, um, and the score is by a guy called Michael Danner, who's a, a Canadian composer, and they, they actually just won, uh, both of them, the Oscar for The Life of Pi, which is them collaborating um, again. again. Um, and The Ice Storm is this film set in uh, post-Watergate um, New York State, um, and uh, deals with sort of families' relationships with each other in the middle of sort of um, sort of Connecticut forest kind of beautiful sort of in the winter. In and the winter, when everybody's husband and wife swapping. Exactly. Yeah. It's that era. It's that era. And the yeah. chaos that is wrought by their Indeed, pleasures. Yeah. So, but the score is really interesting. The score is for um, uh, a chamber orchestra.
orchestra, a gamelan ensemble, and a Native American flute. And um, and that so the book discusses the score and how it works and what it's doing. And, but more than that, the thing that I think is uh, is useful about it, and the thing that I've done, um, I guess. I've been able to focus on on some aspects of my writing is that it talks about the process of the development of the score because it started in a very different place and the composer gave me all of their computer files so I could actually trace the development of the score and I had you know all the emails and all of the sort of production notes and you can go well the producer at this point thinks this is not working and therefore it changes direction and this cue um, starts as a very electronic, it kind of started as a Wendy Carlos-ish kind of synthesizer sort of score, and then became this Which sort would of have been 70s very, style. Very 70s style. Yeah. And sort of uh, cold and alienating was kind of where it was going for, and that wasn't working, and then it, it kind of it goes through these various stages which you can trace through what the composer sort of fire. So it's nice to focus on process as well, because no one has really focused on that in terms of film music, mostly because it's hard to get hold of the stuff to be able to focus on it and to be able to know what to look for. And, and the composer was very frank, very open, um, and I guess because I was a composer was kind of prepared to talk to me about some of those kind of things. Um, and you know, and so I've got, I've got a, um, a useful sense of how how the producer got involved, about how really important the editor, picture editor was, how little the director says to the composer, in fact, in this particular case, because he's a very quiet director, but is very, very dogged and persistent without really saying very much, and all of those kind of things sort of came out of it, and, and how the idea to use a gamelan ensemble sort of came about, and how the composer persuaded the director that this would be a good idea, and um, so all of that, I think, is the most useful sort of stuff that, that came out of it. That, the sense of process behind this stuff. In terms of authenticity slash cultural appropriation issues... You mean in terms of the gamelan? Or? Yeah, well, gamelan, Native American yeah, yeah. music being used by folks who are not yeah. Indonesian, Absolutely, yeah. not Native American, I assume. I mean, Ang Lee certainly isn't. Yeah, no, it's... Um, it's an interesting question, and it's one obviously put to Michael Danner uh, a lot, and that, a lot of his work has done that. He's used you know various instruments from different places. What I think it is is he 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 argues, as I guess many people would, that he is respectful to the tradition, um, and that you know he pays people properly, and that he acknowledges people properly, and all of these kinds of things, and that he doesn't disrespect the culture that that, that music comes from because yeah. he knows enough about that culture to. Right. Uh, he would he would also argue that it's not really about that anymore. That these just happen to be sounds, and that um, yeah, they disarticulated, uh, disarticulated from their reference. from their refer and therefore that's how they can be used within these kind of contexts. Yeah. And um, you can you can probably trace that in his career from. He did a lot of work with Atta McGoyan, Canadian sort of filmmaker. Um, there's a film called Exotica, which uses a whole lot of Indian instruments, and, and he went out to India and he recorded those kind of things. And you know that that seems more tied to a kind of exotic, a sense of exotic, a sense of exotic location than the more recent stuff, which is using that material, but but is is just using it as pure sound or trying to use it as pure sound. Um, yeah, and, and of course there's ethical and, you know, and ethnomusicologists are, would no doubt be very unhappy about this kind of practice. Well, in a certain sense, but you've got to allow all cultures to change, to develop, to grow, to mingle. Yeah. There aren't any cultures that aren't hybrid. Yeah, no, sure. Anyway. Yeah. And, um, you know, from that hybridity comes interesting interesting stuff, stuff that might sort of, you know, become its own genre or style or sure. tradition or whatever. Turn people on to that music. Yeah. But of course this is such a big issue in the US context because of the mobilization of African American music yeah, yeah, by yeah. others especially. Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, all of rock and roll and all of jazz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm just interested in that question of blending. Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, um, but again, is that not, has that not moved on a pace? I mean, you know, you've got the uh, Elvis, you know, stole 
black music kind of thing. And, um, and then other people stole this black music and that black music. But have we not moved somewhere else now in the States where it's, it's become You just remember that, I think we might have talked about this before, if not recording then, you know, as friends, that Muddy Waters had that great thing he said to the Rolling Stones, you stole my music but you gave me my name. Yeah. Because of all these British guys who were importing race records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And listening to stuff that white people in the US were not listening yes, to. Yes, yeah, sure. And then, basically, it's the Stones and the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Who come to the US and say, look, we love Elvis and we love Buddy Holly, but listen to this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, it's never as simple as, a, as you know, as one, as a one, in one direction. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, um... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to know how keenly that is still felt in America over particular kinds of music, yeah. with hip-hop, let's say, or, you know. Where it's so citational. Indeed. And, yeah. you know, there's the Grey Album. Think of the Grey Album. Yeah. And other things. Where yeah, people yeah. People would love appropriating the Beatles. Yeah. Um, the other day I was listening to an album that, from the s late 60s that was the Motown, sing Motown Sings the Beatles. <laughs> right. Okay. I don't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. But it's, you know... Wow, what's it, that like? I can't, it's okay. I can't quite imagine that. Well, do you remember... The Diana Ross and the Supremes do something or other. Um, Otis Redding, I think, yeah. did Eleanor Rigby, maybe. Okay. <laughs> wow, a stack Eleanor Rigby. But it's worth good. checking out. Yeah. I think it's called Motown Seems to Be. Okay, yeah, I'll check that out. And it, it's the Supremes and the Four Tops. And yeah, the yeah. Top. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's kind of fun. And, I mean, I'm, I, I think that that kind of hybridity is interesting. Anyway, you know, that you mentioned the Grey album and and the mashup that's happening there. Actually, I don't think musically is very satisfactory. It's kind of all right, but but the idea is a really great idea. And the best. Could you thing, explain that to listeners? Yeah. Actually, you may not know the Grey album. The Grey album is um, uh, a guy called DJ Danger Mouse, and he basically put together. Um, Beatles, the the White Album, and his real title is the Beatles. The Beatles is always known as the White, the album. White album, and Jay Z's the Black Album, and put them together um, using various bits of digital technology, um, and a mashup usually takes a simple mashup takes the the vocal element from one sort of song and puts it over the accompaniment of another one. So one that's really successful and I, I like is um puts uh, Stand By Me, Benny King song with uh, The Police's Every Breath You Take. And you get the introduction and then Every Breath You Take sort of comes in over it. It's fantastic. And it works fantastically well. And it kind of reveals, you know, the similarity and structure between the two songs and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, he did this, um, this album and it caused a huge fuss because um, uh, the labels wanted to sue and they, they issued cease and desist, kind of, there was a whole lot of political sort of action around it. Yeah. The best thing I think about the album is not actually the album, is there's a video, there's a YouTube video which is the, um, this is called The Grey Video, which um, is brilliant, which has the Beatles performing, um, and um, then it's intercut with old audience, old technology, old recording with modern audience, and then sort of Ringo starts hip hop dancing at one point in it. And, um, uh, which he can probably do because he's not really a musician. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so yeah, that's great. That's a great video. So, getting back to your book on the iPhone, so you worked closely with the composer yeah. on the book. How did that feel when it came time to writing critical themes or making cultural interpretations? Yeah, sure. It was, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't find it a problem, but, um, I wasn't being maybe particularly critical, although there were some things I was being critical about. And of course, you know, I had to give everything to the composer and say, you know, this is what, what it is, what, you know, do you have any thoughts? And he said he found it an incredibly painful experience reading about himself. You know. But he, he also said there are things about the production he didn't know about, uh, which was interesting. Because, you know, I'd heard one story from him, but I'd asked the picture editor, the producer, the same kind of thing. And there were different perspectives. So the producer, I thought, ended up post-rationalising trying to claim a lot of responsibility for some of the decisions in relation to the, to the music, for example. Um, and things like he didn't, he, 
he had one the composer had one perception about why he was hired but I kind of heard from other people about why he was hired so that ended up being a sort of a, you know, a point of discussion so for me it was it was fine but I, I wasn't being I wasn't being particularly critical of the composer if I'd started out with going this approach is just wrong this is a bad way to score a film and you know this is uh, um, you know unethical or whatever then I think that would have been more more difficult um, and I, I guess the question from an academic perspective is if that's really what I had felt would that relationship have meant that that's what I could have been written or not and I, I don't really know the answer to that. People who do ethnography are always having to hold back from saying what yes. they really think yeah. and certainly from saying what everybody said to them and from attributing to people directly what they said. Yeah. We all have to do that. Yeah, of course, up to a, a point. Journalists are forever dealing with this is background, this yeah, is not yeah. attribution, yeah. this you can quote, this you can say but you can't say who said it. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's true, although I guess there's about to be very punsy is a sort of the sanctity of the argument you know if the argument is is important and it, and it challenges yeah. um, various perceptions or attitudes or even you know various people um, then I guess that the argument probably wins you know. well that's a different slightly different question because you're not just reporting which no, is a exactly. big thing to be doing yeah, yeah. you are judging yes indeed that's what we want from you along yeah. with reporting I mean, I wonder with a different composer um, whether the situation would have been different. He, I mean, he was very, very open. He was very free. He gave me everything, yeah. and he just kind of went, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to do, kind of thing. Um, I wonder what he said to the next guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There haven't been any books since, so. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I, I, and I don't know if I would, I would do it again, or if I would be more aware of that, you know, doing it again under what circumstances. Yeah. And you know, I imagine if the composer starts going, well, you can't say that, and I don't want you to say that. You know, um, that would be very difficult. You know, what what position would you? Thank you very much. When you got a moment, can we get the check? No problem. Do you want another coffee though? No, I'm okay. I'm okay thank you. So um, yeah, that's one to, to consider. But um, I, I've also found this sort of writing about, to a certain extent, writing about my own stuff from an opposite direction, because I've increasingly been writing about my own practice and the issues relating to that. In keeping with the onanism that has long characterised your career. Indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Finally, you've turned around and said, "Let's be honest about this." Yeah. But, I, but how, I like that in a man. But how honest am I being? Is the question. You know, do you do you um, do you really tell the truth about your process and what happened, or do you, you know, do you dress it up a little bit to make yourself look a little bit better? Probably, you probably you do. You know. I bet students, not only your own but others, find it incredibly helpful. Yeah, they find it really interesting. Yeah, and they and they like they like that it's based in some kind of you know real real experience. And you and you. So it's not just here are the aesthetic issues that this project you know presents. Here are the challenges. It's here are the political ones as well. You know. So could you give us a for instance? Yeah. So. Um, this is my, here are my initial demos for this cube, and the director hates this one, but I really like this one, and I still really like this one, and so here's the discussion we had, here's the email back and forth by the way, about um, how, why the director's arguing that this is not the right approach, and uh, so here are my subsequent versions, and here's the final version, and um, you can, and then you kind of go, what I've done with that with students is I've gone, you know, what, which one's best? Which of these is best? You know? And we kind of all tend to agree, well, it's, it's really the final one. And, you know, I kind of have to conclude, yeah, I like this approach, but the director was kind of right, I think. But when I was in the middle of the process, I couldn't see that so clearly. I was kind of trying to go down a route and got sidetracked, then tried to do this, tried to do that, and so on. So that's really, really interesting, really useful. Um, and can people read some of that? Yeah. Where, where can they find that? I've got a, um, an article published on my score for a film called Little Ashes, um, which is in the journal Music, Sound and the Moving Image. The Journal um, of Music, Sound and the Moving Image. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, it's called Outing the Score, uh, 
music narrative and something else in Little Ashes. My part in their downfall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it talks uh, it talks a little bit about some a very specific aspect of the process, and there's some discussion about you know what the director thought, what I thought, the back and yeah, forth. Yeah. You, and there's links to um, a website where you can see uh, some of the demos. So you can see here's a first attempt, here's a second attempt, stuff like that. That's absolutely wonderful. So is this an online journal? No, the journal, well, the journal has, you know, uh, you can download PDF, but... Um, thank you, thank you. But, um, no, it's, it, you go to my website and there's a section and you can see various bits of musical Can examples. you remind us of the address of your website? Miguel? It's just www.miguelmera.com And there's a section on uh, research, there's a section on compositions, and so you can see some of the, some of the kind of stuff. Music must be one of these areas that's really benefiting from yeah, scholarship going online. Yeah, it is, but um, but we have huge legal issues there, you know. Um, and it's it's why going to a, a film music conference is really good because you get to see some of the examples, you know. And in something like I'm talking about, you know, I'm playing you stuff that you can't get to see if you buy the DVD. You can't get to see the stuff, you know. This is about the process, so. Um, and in a way, not to be able to show people that and to describe it seems very, very, just to describe seems very dry. So, um, but publishers are still very, very nervous very about, nervous. about I, I guess I, you know, one of the reasons I do the pod is to do what you're doing in your articles. Yes. Yeah. I always love to know how people got to be where they are yeah. and how they do what they do. Yeah. So I love reading things that are written by people I know. Right. <laughs> For all the problems with ideas of unitary authorship. Yeah, yeah, sure. I just love thinking, oh, I can, I can see their face when they said that. Right, right. Or, they don't believe that. Well, but then maybe we shouldn't be writing articles at all and we should just all be, you know, up on... How cute is that? This is the smallest person ever seen wearing a bicycle helmet. Safety first. I like that. Yeah. Probably never been on a bike, but the helmet's the Yeah, place. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, you know. maybe we shouldn't be writing at all. Maybe we should just be you know, doing podcasts or you know, video things or, or more um, interactive kind of um, outputs. Well, on that, that may, basis, you know, that may well be. or a combination of yeah, uh, sure. I mean, I, I'm thinking also of how, particularly in music, think about the kind of fetish in the '70s for bootleg Beatles albums or uh, Jimi Hendrix yeah, or Buddy yeah. Holly, the people yeah. who died or broken up. And somebody found a concert at Shea Stadium, or somebody found some piece of rubbish they were doing in the studio for a heck of it. Yeah. How? important part of the paratextuality of music that was, always has been, yeah. since recorded music, yeah, yeah. but now is, thank you very much, infinitely more available. Yes, absolutely, yeah. You can get hold of most things, and, um, but, but, but still academic publishers are nervous to, let's say you're writing about, I've just written about um, uh, Tarantino films, so I've just written an article about Inglorious Bastards. Oh, starring me. Uh, is that you? In that I see, I'm, I'm the Nazi officer. Ah, okay. I'm often mistaken for him. I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. A great performance, well done. It's nothing good. Yeah. So I've just written about that, and um, and it's OUP, and, and they were... They're actually being Oxford University Press. They're actually being quite um, proactive and saying we will put up clips on our website, but you need to clear permission for it to, to, for us to do that. So can you imagine trying to clear rights for you know three or four clips from Inglorious Bastards? Um, just in, just impossible, you know. And um, neither within the financial means of most academics or academic institutions, or just the time to do it. Even for my book on the Ice Storm, which had had musical examples which were not published, there was no score, I transcribed them and I had them from the composer's um, uh, uh, manuscript stuff. Um, there was no residual interest in it from Fox, who were the, the publisher, but they still wanted to charge me thousands and thousands of pounds for these musical examples, because the lawyers are just in that mentality. And you go, look, not that many people are going to buy this book. It's just musical examples to illustrate something which you don't publish, you do not get any revenue stream from anywhere. 
So, uh, yeah, it's kind of, we're in a, a difficult sort of situation. So people, you know, YouTube clips is kind of the, the answer if, if they're up there. But, but they can also be taken down. Yeah, of course. I, I published something the other day, um, and that was partly about Year Parbleu. Right. Uh, because I did an interview on German TV about the cultural legacy of Mrs. Thatcher. Yeah. You know, she was the lead singer of Red Wedge, <laughs> one of the major proponents of Red Wedge. I see, right, right. Yeah. People talk about Billy Bragg, Paul Weller. It's funny because it was all of that smart. stuff you last week, and we didn't really hear about that aspect, so, yeah. Well, I tried. Yeah. Anyway, I wrote a blog about the interviews I did. I did one on Sky News, I did one on GDF, about the music at yeah, yeah. time. And... As I was going on camera for ZDF, they told me Ding Dong was racing up the charts. So I sang it for them <laughs> to camera, which I thought was very helpful. Astonishingly, they appear not to put that to air. I, I can't imagine why. Right. Censored, just like BBC. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'm thinking about this in the context of uh, those moments when something just captures an era, captures something special. Yeah. And you get anxiety about it. So yes, yes. I, I talked about how Ding Dong was a Marxist song. Yep. The whole The Wizard of Oz is a Marxist story. <laughs> yes. He paid for it by what, 10 years not being allowed to yeah, write yeah. for Hollywood films yep. politically. But that's all lost, we don't think about it. And in the blog I wrote that was published in a journal, I had a link to uh, Yip Harburg's son telling this story about his dad. Right. Taken down within a day really? of my thing going up. And then the people who edit, I pointed this out to people who edited the journal. They hunted around and found, you know, another place where it was. Right. But yeah, take down like that. So, and do you know what happened when it was taken down? How was, why was it taken down? Who took it down? Uh, we don't know. Right. Uh, well, sorry, there was a notice that went up when you clicked on it that said, you know, this is the property of NBC, well, this is using property owned by NBC. Yeah, yeah. We won't have it. And bugger you. Right. Yeah. They found it that quickly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're certainly, yeah, absolutely. They're searching for it. Um, and it's a difficult one. I don't know. I don't know the answer really. But for, for my field, it's a huge, uh, a huge area. We deal with an audiovisual medium. So if you can't look at that, show that, you know. Um, then it's, a, it's an issue. And we don't have fair use here to protect us. The same we way do, but like not for that. Not for that kind of stuff. How but, so fair use works for music here? Um, it, yes, but it's of course it's quite ambiguous what, what falls within fair use or fair dealing or not. Um, and it's, you know, the, the legal definition is a significant, it must not be a significant element or something like that, which, you know, who, who knows what, what that means. And the, the problem is no one's prepared to go to court, you know, to argue that, Because when I started the pods, my model was Desert Island Disc. Yes. <laughs> and I started doing it with people, the first three or four, people would say, choose your eight favourite bits of music. Right. And I thought I would do what the BBC does, which, as you may know, is it on the podcasts, they have a fraction of the Music. Yes, and I think it's and that's how they get away. With I it. think it's ten percent. But I think, but, but I talked to an entertainment attorney friend of mine who said that's bullshit. Yeah, There's yeah. no percentage. Yeah. They can do that because they're the BBC. Yes, yeah, yeah. You can't. You can't say, oh, it's five percent. What's it matter? They'll sue your asses yeah, yeah. for anything. But in any case, the BBC are paying. They have their their license with the PRS. They record all of their uses of music and they pay a, a big wedge of cash. So PRS um, composers are assigned to uh, various collections agencies around the world. The UK collection agency is the Performing Rights Society. If I have something broadcast on television, um, I earn royalties from that and the PRS collects the royalties. So they have various deals with all of the TV companies and um, at the end of the year they collect a big wadge of cash for everything that they've used. But it also means that companies like the BBC can use a whole load of tracks because they paid for a license with the PRS. So. But I think they haven't paid as, as much as they think they might need to to allow the music to be played in full on the podcast. Because they, say, the podcast, they yeah. say performing rights issues really mean okay. that we're only playing a fraction of the music. Oh, so they actually say that? Kirsty Young says that, and we believe everything Kirsty tells us. I, yeah, I do, yeah. Don't you? Well, I don't like the new hairdo so much. <laughs> okay. How, what's wrong with the new hairdo? I don't think I... Uh, 
It's a crime watch hairdo, is it, or is it? <laughs> it's a bit of a crime watch hairdo. Okay, yeah. No, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I gave up on it. I mean, right. A, it was much harder to do. Yeah. Harder, harder work for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. B, and more important, I was really told you could get in trouble with this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's difficult. I don't know how we get around that. Yeah. Um, except that people need to stand up and do it, I think, is the actual sort of... Well, what we need, really, is some heavy-duty, wealthy entertainment attorneys in the United States, pro bono, <laughs> to say, against their own interests in the other parts of their labour, probably, I will defend you against random house. I will defend yeah, you yeah, against yeah. Fox. Yeah. We will take this to the wire because a lot of them are pretty sure that the Supremes, by which I mean not the important Supremes, but <laughs> I the justices of the Supremes. But I, I did have a, I did have a vision of the, the justices singing in harmony, and yeah, that actually. Possibly all the Supreme Court justices, and any person who'd ever get there, would say, fucking you. Yeah. Fair use really does extend yeah, an yeah. awfully long way yeah. because of First Amendment protections to do with criticism yeah. and the family. Yeah, absolutely. Because they all believe in that, regardless of their politics. Sure. But the trouble but is, no one, no one wants to be the staying, test case. Staying the course against one of these big majors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Water music. There's no way. Yeah, you're kind of tough. You've got to have so much money, and they can ruin your career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just financially. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you, as a jobbing composer, took them on as a scholar, see ya. Yeah, yeah. I imagine. You know, just be a quiet. Let's, let's try it, shall we? Okay. I Come think on. it's going to be our second project after the <laughs> coming triumph. Why, why musicians can't dance? Yeah. Anyway. So how's your time? Do you need to shoot through? I've got about got? five or six minutes. Five or six minutes. Okay. So, we've discussed this fairly recent article. Are there things in between the two books and that article yeah, that you might uh, want to draw our oh attention God. to? Now, now I've gone blank. Um, I've published on the use of the representation of historical period in film music, uh, using the film Dangerous Liaisons as a particular example where uh, the composer George Fenton um, uh, borrows uh, a lot of pre-existing Baroque music, including some Bach and some Handel, and incorporates that into his sort of score. Which is out of copyright. Yeah, which is out of copyright, so it's fine. Um, technically, uh, ethically is another another matter. Um, and it's a great, a great score, actually, I think. And, um, but he, he kind of argued, and again, I spoke, I spoke to him and I had access to some of his scores and stuff. He argued that, um, you know, I, can't, I could do a Bach pastiche, but why would I, you know, do a pastiche when the stuff is there? You know, I'm going to do it and it's going to be a bit crap compared to Bach, so I might as well just use it and incorporate it into... And, um, and that's, that's an okay argument, actually, it seems to me, in some way. And, um, and it brings all sorts of elements to the, to the film. It sort of gives it a kind of richer texture. And, and he also had a Baroque orchestra and, um, and a modern orchestra playing simultaneously, um, which I guess most people won't know this, but they play at different um, uh, temperaments. So uh, a Baroque orchestra is down a, a semitone and has a slightly different tuning system from a modern orchestra. So in essence, you have to write two different sort of scores for the people to play together at the, the same time. So that, that's one sort of aspect of it, but a kind of musicological aspect of it that was interesting and, and sort of quite brave for the time. Um, I've done some stuff on pop music and film. I've written about uh, the film Train Spotting and the use of the song Perfect Day in that. Uh, I think mainly arguing Lots of people, after it came out, went, well, that's ironic, isn't it? It's really wonderfully ironic the way this song appears here against these scenes of, of someone overdosing. And I, I was kind of arguing, yeah, but the song is already ironic. That's the, that's the point. That's why it's not just that you put something against something else and therefore there's a contrast in there. Hey, presto, there's irony. Um, it's that there's their ironic um, 
irony is at the core of this song anyway, and that's one of the. This is the Lou Reed, the Lou Reed song for Transformer, which is really all about drugs and sex yeah. and the downsides of those things, isn't it? So um, yeah, and it's sort of about how it works with that that scene, how the scene is actually edited to the music, and how those configurations work structurally and that kind of stuff. So, um, and where are those two pieces available? The Dangerous Liaisons piece. The Dangerous the Liaisons is, is quite hard to find because it's in a uh, in a general uh, of the Dolmetsch Foundation, which is an early music sort of publisher, and. Uh, the train spotting article is in a book called Pop Fiction, which is about um, uh, the use of popular music in, in film. Basically. And we can probably find more about these at your website. Yeah, there's probably so, stuff up there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I've done stuff on sources, so um, I did a, um, a scoping study of film music uh, sources in the UK and Ireland. So it's kind of literally going, here's what there is out there for researchers to study. Um, and here's some stuff that's held at the British Library and at the BBC that we didn't know about. And, um, these, here are some private collections and, um, and there's quite a lot of, of scores and tapes and bits and pieces held in various collections and it's kind of going, come on people, here's the stuff, let's, let's, let's do some research with this. Kind of so, um, so that's fairly that? recent. That's, that was funded by the Music Libraries Trust, so it's, it's in, their, in their journal. And can you update it? Is that something that we, uh, we could, others can update? We, sh we should have put it as a website so that it could be updated, but we, it's, it's a kind of a fixed publication. So. It'd be great to try to get them to put it on a website and then just use the wisdom of the crowd. To, uh, to update it, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't do that, so we, we, we were bad, but that's... Uh, you were bad. We were bad. But, and you've just been spoken to. I know. Um, I'll, uh, it was my colleague's fault. I just remembered. I it was so. a co-authored. I'm, I'm, I, yeah. Um, might have guessed it wasn't anything to do with you. The brilliant idea and the execution were yours. I know. The, I one, know. the one mistake was I know. Not. Um, yeah. No, but, but um, yeah, that's that's out there, and we should have sort of um, have done that. That would have been helpful, actually. So, um, yeah, So and there's more material out there than, than sort of people are aware of, um, including, astonishingly, the BBC Library, which is not a library really for researchers. It's just a library of in-house BBC stuff. And we found things like... Um, the um, you know the Morecambe and Wise um, breakfast um, sketch stripper. Um, no? Don't remember it. Um, very sort of famous. They're, they're basically in their dressing gowns, chopping breakfast in the morning, and they'd start dancing around. And there's an arrangement of the, the stripper da 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 while they do it. But the, the arrangement. Danny Ro uh, David Rose. Yes. Stripper. But the arrangement I forget who's by is was in-house composer who worked on the Morecambe and Wise show. And the arrangement reveals all sorts of things about how the scene was put together. So, and there's stuff like that. They've got tons and tons of sheet music just for their own kind of yeah. interest and purposes. But researchers haven't really accessed it. So we were kind of going, let's make it available to researchers. So as we wind up, what about the future? What do you have in mind? I've got a few things. Um, I think I am uh, editing a, a volume which will be a kind of a companion to film music kind of thing. Um, I'm increasingly interested in the televisation of concert music and televisation of, of music performance and how that influences the way we hear the music, the strategies used. And I've been doing some research, we've just done an initial experiment with um, uh, people at City on, in human-computer interaction. City University London. Um, where we're looking at... Um, uh, eye tracking. We're actually measuring where people look uh, when they're um, watching a film in relation to music. So we're trying to see if there are uh, what the commonalities are, what the influences are on the way people actually physically look at something. So you're doing that with cognitive scientists? It's, um, it's human-computer interaction, so it's not psychology department, um, but yeah, some, some cognitive stuff sort of comes, comes in, into that. We may, this may lead to a, a funding bid, uh, at which point we'll probably hook up, I think, with more of the, the psychologists um, 
you know, do some other things. Some there, there are other things you can measure for in galvanic skin response and things like that. So trying to get a bit more empirical because that that hasn't really been the case in the film music sort of research so far. Galvanometers were used in the 30s to establish the relationship between watching films and being and violent. In, yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. And and you know and the relationship between film and emotion and all of that kind of thing. So. Um, yeah, so they're, they're the current things. I'm also, uh, I think, doing a comp composition. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be on sabbatical, which is quite nice in September. So the main project is going to be a composition, which will be an audiovisual dance piece. Um, so there we go. Work composers can't can't uh, can't dance, but they can write for dancers to do to do it instead. Um, I think dance on film has been done generally very very badly. And I've, I've worked with a filmmaker who I, I really like and get on with. And we're just in the final stages of organising it. We have the dance troupe, we have, I think, the choreographer and the filmmaker. It's just final bits and pieces. And we're hoping there'll be a live performance with audiovisual projection that will have some live vision mixing but some pre-recorded stuff so that you don't know what's live and what's not. And there will also come out of it a, a proper sort of video piece, um, which will be more... Normally when you see dance pieces, they kind of put up a camera in front of dancers and go, okay, we've captured you dancing. We want it to be more dynamic and, and sort of intimate and, and related to the dance than is normally the case. So that, that's, that's kind of going to, that's, that's the main sort of practical project. What a wonderful project. Well, Miguel Mero, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great chatting to you as always. No problem.